Good evening and welcome to um, another wonderful and beautiful class on the Rebbe's teachings. And today we are learning about Parashas Pinchas. It's a, a very special parasha. There's a lot going on. Um, it comes on the heels of a very dramatic time for the Jewish people. Um, they're getting ready to enter the land of Israel. There are some hiccups on the way. Uh, there were some victories. There were some tragedies. And now the Jewish people are getting ready for the final stretch. And before they go into the land of Israel, uh, there is very important business, business they need to take care of. <coughs> and that is that when the Jewish people come to Israel, it's not just about coming into a land that's going to be a place that is already prepared for them and everyone's waiting for them with, you know, with a red carpet and uh, you know, they're coming to a resort in order to, uh, to enjoy themselves for the rest of their lives. No, coming into the land of Israel means that now everyone is going to have to get to work, everyone is going to get a certain piece of the land, and uh, most of the people, that's how they're going to make their living, off of uh, working the land, that's the idea. Now, the truth of the matter is, this did not apply to all Jews. Uh, if we're going to say there were 13 tribes, because the tribe of Joseph was split into two, Menashe and Ephraim, so there were 13 tribes, and one of those tribes did not receive any uh, you know, real estate in order to plant and to plow and to do all of these things. That was the tribe of Levi. They did receive certain cities to live in, but uh, their living came as a result of uh, the gifts that the Jewish people were obligated to give to the Kohanim and to the Levites in order to support them because they were dedicated to serving God in the Holy Temple. And um, also their job was to teach, to teach Torah, etc., um, however, the question is now, who is going to get what in the land of Israel? Um, and that's what we're going to be focusing on. And within this general story of dividing up the land of Israel between all of the Jewish people, there's going to become like a, like a subplot um, of the daughters of Tzlavchad, which uh, for many is a very famous story. We're going to get to the bottom of this story. What's going on here? Alrighty, let's go to page, page three, right? As usual, page three is what we deal with. In this week's Torah portion, we read the story of the daughters of Tzalafchad. The sages explain that the women cherish the Holy Land more than the men. Actually, before we continue, just some context of this uh, sicha, of this talk. It's a talk from the 12th of Tammuz, 1957. 12th of Tammuz, uh, it's, a, it's the anniversary of the redemption of the previous Rebbe from communist prison. Um... In fact, that year marked the 30th anniversary from that event. It was in 1927. Uh, the previous rebel was arrested for the terrible crime of, of keeping Judaism alive in Russia. And he paid very dearly for that. Uh, he was arrested and um, the, the secret police had decided that uh, he should face a firing squad. But several miracles happened uh, that ensured that that did not happen. And, uh, and finally, you know, his sentence was commuted to, was changed to three years of, of, uh, of exile in Kastrama, which is far away from any regular Jewish community, and less than 10 days later, he was set free. So that's the 12th of Tom, was a tremendous celebration, we celebrate it until today, today is 96 years from that event. This sikha, this talk that the Rebbe is going to speak about now, that, that we are learning, the Rebbe spoke... In 1957, at one such Farbrengen, which was a celebration of that uh, of, of that uh, great redemption. 
Okay, so I imagine that the parasha of the week was uh, Parashas Pinchas. It's very possible for that to happen. That's actually happening now. We are still celebrating the 12th of Tammuz. The 12th of Tammuz was a Shabbos. Today is the 13th. The celebration is a two-day celebration. I can get into the reasons for that. Um, and uh, right away the Rebbe tells us there was a story with the daughters of Tzlovcha. So what's the deal? Um, so here's the deal. The Jewish people, they, are, they have to divide the land. Now, the land of Israel is quite diverse. The topography uh, varies. Uh, there are some hilly areas. There are some flat lands. You know. So, the first order of business was to divide it up into 12 portions. Remember, one of the tribes is not going to get any portion in the land of Israel. These 12 portions were divided up. And now the question is, which tribe is going to get which portion? Now, Moses is not going to decide that. Obviously, God is going to decide that. So, how was it decided? Um, they took uh, 12 pieces of paper and they wrote out the 12 regions that were, you know, set up, that were, that were divided up. And then they took two pieces of pa- 12 pieces of paper and they had the names of each tribe. And then the leader of each tribe, a representative, a representative leader of each tribe uh, was told to come and put his hand into the box, the box of the names of the tribes. So he would, and he would put it in, it was totally random, and he would pick it out, and uh, the fact of the matter is that every one of them picked out the name of their tribe. So if the leader of the tribe of Reuven put his hand into the box, hey, let's, let's do something more simple. If the leader of the tribe of Usher put his hand into the box and pulled it out, he definitely picked out the paper that had the name Usher. Now what are the chances of that, by the way? I'm not, I'm not a mathematician, but what are the chances if you have 12 pieces of paper there and 12 people are going to pick it out what are the chances that every one of them is going to pick out their paper i'm not even sure that there is a there's a number for that um you know winning the lottery is probably easier than having a scenario where 12 people pick out 12 pieces of paper completely randomly and they each pick their their own um then this uh, the, the leader of the tribe would put his hand in another box that had the different regions they would pick out the region, and then something amazing happened. The, the paper spoke. The paper said, I am the Goyrol, I am the, the lot, the lottery that was picked out, and that for the tribe of Usher, this is what's going to be their, 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 their area. And there was also the Urim the, Vetumim, the, in other words, the, the, the breastplate that was on the Kohen Gadol, also was involved in this whole, in this whole uh, event of dividing up uh, the land. So the Jewish people are seeing very clearly that the way the, the land is being divided up and being given to each one of the tribes is being done by a divine decree, and that's it. No one can come and uh, complain and all that type of stuff. Now, once it's divided up to each tribe, now every tribe has to divide up the land to every family. How does it work out? Um, so essentially, the, the Jews, as they came out of Egypt, so every um, male, every every head of a family um, merited to have a, a portion in the land of Israel. That was the generation that was really supposed to come into the land of Israel. Uh, but it turns out that they didn't. You know, they had some trouble. They got stuck in the, in, the, in the desert for 40 years, and now their children are going into the land of Israel. So there was an interesting merge between how they kept the legacy of the previous generation while making it the, you know, the, the inheritance of the current generation. I'm not going to get into the details of how that worked, but the point is that it was the, the men who were the heads of the families, they were the ones that inherited land 
in the land of Israel, and that's how they divided it up, and that's how land remained in the family legacy. Um, what was the plan for the women? The plan for the women is that the women marry other, marry you know, they marry men, and now they're part of that family, and that's that. And then the inheritance continues, um, uh, you know, from father to son to son to son, etc. Now, at the end of Parashas Pinchas, not at the end, in the middle of Parashas Pinchas, we have a problem. What's the problem? There's a family that there, the family came out of Egypt. His name was Tzlovchot. He came from the tribe of Menashe. And uh, so he, he was supposed to merit a portion of the land of Israel. If the Jewish people would have entered the land of Israel after one year of being in the desert, as they were supposed to, he would have inherited the land. And that's that. However, he had died. Why he died is a separate question. There's a discussion of how he died. But he died. And now, 40 years later, he has no sons. He only has daughters. Now, daughters had not been, you know, women had not been part of the equation when it came to uh, dividing up the land. So the daughters of Tzlovchad, they came to Moses and they had a problem. I'm just going to say the problem on the outside. They said like this. The issue is not that we want land. We're, I mean, we'll get married, we'll have land, and that's fine. Our problem is that our father's name will be erased from the map. Our father really deserved to have a, a portion of the land of Israel. And in fact, the sin that he committed, that as a result of that sin, he died, uh, he, he did not forfeit his, his portion in the land. In fact, he loved the land of Israel. He wanted to go to the land of Israel, etc. So, so what's the deal? How, how is our father's legacy going to be perpetuated? How is his name going to be on the map of Israel? That's essentially their complaint. So let's read it in source number one. The daughters of Tzlavchad, son of Hefer, son of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menashe, of the family of Menashe, Joseph's son, came forward. Their names were Machla, Noya, Chagla, Milka, and Tirza. They're not nameless, they're not faceless, they have names. They stood before Moses, Allah the priest. Remember, Aaron the high priest uh, already passed away. Last week's parish, we learned about his passing. So they stood, so Allah, his son, was now the high priest. The elders and the entire nation at the entrance of the Mishkan tabernacle and said, Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korach's party who agitated against God. He died because of his own sin and he left no sons. Why should our father's name be lost in his family? Because he did not have a son. Give us a portion of land alongside our father's brothers. So, so it's important to realize they're, they're not saying, hey, why are women not included in the equation? They, they have no issue with that. That's the way God wants it. That's the way God wants it. That's the system. Their issue is our father's name is going to be forgotten. All of his brothers are going to have a name on the map and not our father. How do we rectify the issue? Apparently, only his descendants could inherit his land. So if there are no sons, the daughters should do it. Moses thought they had a point. He did not dismiss them. He didn't say, hey, rules are the rules. No, it was like, hey, you have a good point. You have an issue. Let's go to the boss. Moses brought their case before God. God spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Tzlovchod have a just claim. Give them a hereditary portion of land alongside their father's brothers. Let their father's inheritance 
pass over to them. Okay. Great. Beautiful story. What's the story here? What's, what's happening? What motivated the daughters of Tzlavka to come forward? Why couldn't they just accept the fact that that's it? You know, their father didn't have a son. And the rules are that, uh, you know, it's hereditary. And um, the land is divided up based on father to son, etc. So that's it. It's a lost case. So the Medrash tells us an interesting thing. The daughters of Tzlavchad were not an anomaly. It's not like there were just these five women that decided to go against the grain. No. In fact, the daughters of Tzlavchad, they were, um, how do you say, they illustrated the entire um, mode or attitude of all the women of the Jewish people at the time. In other words, they were an example of where all women within the Jewish people, all Jewish women at the time, they, they were basically, they had a certain attitude. And the attitude that the Jewish women had at the time was what motivated the daughters of Tzlavcha to come forward when they realized that their father would be wiped off the Jewish map, wiped off the map of Israel. So, Medrash says, the daughters of Tzlavcha came forward. During that generation, the women were observant in areas the men breached. He brings a few examples. During the sin of the golden calf, Aaron told the people to take off their nose rings and contribute them for the golden calf. The women refused and protested against their husbands. Only the men brought their rings, and the women did not participate in the sin. The same is true of the spies who spoke ill of the land of Israel. It was the men who complained against Moses. And the decree of destruction was issued only against the men. <coughs> the women did not take part in this, and this is why God said that they will perish in the desert. No man will remain. This decree was only on the men, because they didn't want to enter the land of Israel. The women, by contrast, came forward to ask for a portion in the land, as we see in the case of the daughters of Tzalafchad. The story is related immediately after the passing of Miriam, because it tells how the men transgressed while the women acted properly. In other words, what the Medrash is, 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 is um, sharing with us is that all of the women at the time were always in tune and dialed in to what God really wanted. They understood, they had that intuition, the golden calf, this is a mistake. They understood right away that when the spies came back and they said, no, let's not go to the land of Israel. So what are you, crazy or something? Of course we're going to the land of Israel. We love the land of Israel. We'll see soon that it wasn't like the women were going to have an easier time in the land of Israel. Um, but they, they understood that this is what God wants and therefore we want to go there. How do we know for a fact that the women love the land of Israel so much? Because the daughters of Tzlafchad were willing to confront Moses and Elazar and all of the elders and to say, hey, the land of Israel is so precious. We want that our father's name should have an eternal legacy in that land of Israel. That's how much they loved it. It took a lot of courage on their part to do so. And the question is, how did they have this courage? Or how does, what does that courage represent? What, type, what does that represent? And how does that teach us today? Um, and how can we learn from them? All right, so, there are, so this is, this, these were two sources uh, about what's going on in the parsha. Now the Rebbe says like this, you know, the truth is, it's not just that the women 
did not simmer the golden calf, and the women did not make the same mistake that all the men made when the spies came back with the bad report. We see over here that there's a trend with the women that in all of the in, in all of the very important junctures of the Jewish people in their as as they started to evolve into a nation, as they started to develop into a nation, every one of these junctures, the women were front and center, and they were the ones that showed the way of how to do it, of how, of, of how to be a Jewish nation. So the Rebbe continues, we also find women coming before the men at the giving of the Torah. The verse says, this is what you should say to the house of Jacob and ten, tell the sons of Israel. We find this in Parshat Yisrael. This is in the book of Exodus, when we learn about the story of the giving of the Torah. God tells Moses in preparation for the giving of the Torah, he wants to find out, do the Jews want to have the Torah? So God tells Moses, this is what you should say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. What's the house of Jacob? That refers to the women. The sons of Israel refers to the men. Um, let's read the, the verses, source number three. Moses went up to God and God called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you should say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. This is what you should say to the house of Jacob. The Medrash tells us these are the women. Tell the sons of Israel these are the men. All right, so we see that when it comes to, the, to receiving the Torah, God said that, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm going to first, I'm, I'm going to first uh, discuss it with the women, and then we will discuss it with the men. Um, just want to see if this is... So wh why is that? The Medrash says a very interesting thing. You've heard about the sin of uh, eating from the tree of knowledge, I'm sure. So, uh, you know, this is the very first sin. Now, how did that come about? What happened over there? So, when God created Adam, there was only Adam, only a man, and God gave him a mitzvah. What was that mitzvah? He could eat from all of the trees in the garden, but from the tree of knowledge, which is in the middle of the garden, you're not allowed to eat from it. Very good. Then he creates Eve, Chava. Very nice. Chava, you know, comes to consciousness. She meets Adam. And so uh, I guess one of the first things that he told her on the first date was, um, we've got some rules. You can eat whatever you want, but there's, uh, you know, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. Can't eat from it. Now, Chava herself did not hear it from God. Um, at the end, the serpent was able to kind of, you know, trick Chava into eating from it. Um, the, the serpent came and said, oh, you know, you're not, you're, you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees. And she said, we're allowed to, but even the one in the middle, you're not even allowed to touch it. Anyway, it went from bad to worse. Then she sinned, and then she got Adam to sin, etc. So God said, okay, I see that when I give the mitzvah to the man, the way it gets communicated to the woman, it's not very effective. It's, it's, you know, the, and, and everything falls apart as a result. This time, when I give the mitzvahs to people, I'm going to go to the women first. Talk to the women. You know they'll hear it directly from me, from me. They're going to accept it. They're going to be the ones to set the tone. They're going to make sure that their husbands do the right thing, and then everything will be okay. And it seems like it worked. You know, God came to the Jewish people first, went to the women, then to the men, and uh, we're still here to tell the tale. We're still here to learn the Torah and to do the mitzvahs. So the women can already pat themselves on the back. Um, so that's at the beginning, at receiving the Torah. The women were the ones that were that were. Um, that, that made that decision that we are going to accept the Torah. God communicated with them first. Then a little while after that, there was the building of the tabernacle of the Mishkan, God's home. 
So the Rebbe continues here on page 5. We find the same phenomenon with the construction of the Mishkan, about which the verse says, Make a temple for me, and I will dwell in their midst. When relating the process of the Mishkan's construction, the verse says, The men came with the women. Which means, like, following them. The men came together with the women. Right? Like, the women were the main ones, and then the, the men came with them. The Mishkan's purpose as the site for God's presence to dwell wasn't just part of the divine service in the desert period. It continued after settling in the land of Israel. Here too we find that the women cherished the Mishkan more than the men. Uh, let's look at source number four. The men followed the women, all who had a willing heart, brought bracelets, earrings, rings, and necklaces, all kinds of gold, jewelry, and every man who presented a waving of gold to God. The Ramban, Rachmanides, explains the reason the men followed the women was because women are more readily able to donate jewelry, and they all have jewelry. They immediately removed their jewelry and were first to bring it. The men who had jewelry came after them to bring it. Following the women indicates that the women were first, and the men followed their example. So the women first gave their jewelry, and then the men came with their Rolexes to give it also. But uh, the point is that when it came to donating for the Mishkan, they weren't just donating for a, you know, a, a temple that was only in the desert time, etc. This was the beginning of an entirely new concept in the world, that God is going to have a physical edifice, which is going to uh, be a, a place where godliness is revealed, where we're going to serve God, we're going to experience God in a very physical manner. I mean, you know, miracles. Every Jew that came into the temples experienced tremendous miracles while he was there, while she was there. And, um, and this all started in the Mishkan and the tabernacle in the desert. And who were the ones that set the example of how um, Jews should donate to the temple? That was the women. The women were the ones to come, to come first. So what do we see here? that there were three critical junctions or junctures um, where, where we see how the women show the way when it came to receiving the Torah, building the tabernacle, and going into the land of Israel, cherishing the land of Israel, loving the land of Israel. So let's continue on page 6. These three matters, the giving of the Torah, the construction of the Mishkan, and the entry to Israel are interrelated and are parts of a single process. The starting point of everything is the giving of the Torah. The sages say that God looked into the world, into the Torah and created the world. So acceptance of the Torah that preceded creation and nature is the starting point. In other words, if, uh, since, since the Torah is the foundation of the world, it's the source of the world, and God, in fact, made it a condition that if the Jewish people would, receive the, would accept the Torah, and the world will have a purpose. Will, 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 you know, it, it, could, it could remain. It, it, there's, there's, there's a function to the world. But if they wouldn't accept the Torah, I'm going to destroy the world. Who are the ones that ensure that the Jewish people accepted the Torah? The women. What's the goal? The ultimate goal is to make this lowly realm a dwelling for God. To make our world a home for God. This is represented by the entry to the land of Israel where God's eyes constantly focus. <clears throat> what does that mean? Is Israel a miraculous place? No, not at all, actually. After entering Israel, a natural process began, and the Jewish people had to engage in regular mundane labor. But God's presence was to be felt in everything. 
Holiness is drawn into the lowly physical realm. See, when the Jewish people were in the desert, they had miracles all over them, all around them. They were surrounded by clouds. They were drinking water from a stone. They were eating manna from heaven. There was so many miracles happening over there. However, all these miracles were transcendent of nature. They had no connection to nature. They had no connection to regular physical experiences. When the Jewish people came into the land of Israel, the whole idea was to make it a holy land. Be involved in the land, be involved in earth, be involved in the natural process, but make that natural world, make that earthiness holy. Prior to the redemption, it was before Mashiach will come, this combination of the spiritual and the physical is unique to the land of Israel. After the redemption, the land of Israel will expand all over the world. In other words, the ultimate goal is that the unique quality of Eretz Yisrael, of the Holy Land, of Eretz HaKadosh, that unique quality should be felt all over the world. However, today that's impossible in a, in a, in a practical sense. In other words, it's impossible for the entire world to be Israel halachically. It's impossible for it to actually have that holiness that is possible in the land of Israel. What is the holiness of the land of Israel? Not that there's miracles. It's the fact that over in the land of Israel, every physical action, every physical experience can be permeated with holiness. Because that's the land where God's eyes are focused on all the time. When Mashiach will come, this unique quality is going to exist everywhere. So Torah represents the beginning. The land of Israel represents the ultimate goal. So what's the bridge between Torah, which is the source for the world, to the land of Israel, which is the goal and the ultimate purpose of creation? That bridge between the Torah and the land of Israel, which serves as a conduit for bringing Torah into the mundane world, is the Mishkan. Why? Because the Mishkan was built from gold, silver, and copper. These are physical things. These are This is materials. Materialistic things. Things that only physical beings derive pleasure from, have value in. However, what are we using it for? In order to make it a house for God. And so it was a physical abode, it was a physical home, where there were tremendous miracles. So it was like this, this bridge. It kind of it bridged the, the how you say the, the spirituality of Torah with the physicality of the land of Israel and brought it together. So we have Torah on the one hand, the land of Israel on the other hand, and then in the middle, that bridge between them, the conduit is the Mishkan, the tabernacle, or the holy temple. Now this concept of the bridge between Torah, which really transcends nature, and the idea of the land of Israel, which is all about nature, this was represented by the holy ark in the Mishkan, which had a defined space, yet didn't take up any space. This is actually a very fascinating concept. I think we spoke about this once. Um, the, the, the holy ark was two and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits long. Okay? The, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, where the ark was placed, was 10 cubits, um, was 10 cubits long. 
that if you would stand at one end of the Holy of Holies and measure to the Holy Ark, you would me- to, to one end of the Holy Ark, you would measure five cubits. You would go to the other side of the Holy of Holies and measure to the, the other end of the Holy Ark, you would also measure five cubits. Then if you would go and measure, or at the same time, let's say, you would have, let, let's say there are three people measuring here. One person was measuring from the, from the western wall of the, Holy, uh, of the Holy of Holies to the western end of the Holy Ark. He would measure five cubits. If one of them was standing at the eastern side of the Holy of Holies and measure to the eastern side of the Holy Ark, he would measure five cubits. And if someone was measuring from the eastern wall to the western wall of the Holy of, of, the Holy of Holies, he would measure ten cubits. Where did the one and a half cubits of the Ark go? Where did it go? It was there and it wasn't there. It was defined by space because it had to be exactly two and a half cubits by one and a half cubit. It was defined by that. But it didn't take up space. It was a miracle. Definitely a, a huge miracle. And that was what the, the Mishkan, the whole idea of the tabernacle, and the holy temple was meant to represent. That we have nature and, you know, we have space and beyond space coming together. That possibility of that which is transcendent of nature and nature itself coming together was expressed in the Holy Ark. And that was basically telling us that's what we are meant to do throughout the world. We shouldn't look at the world and say, hey, you know, this world, it's impossible for this world to be a vessel or to be something that is able to reflect godliness, to, to absorb godliness. No, it's an impossibility. Look at the Holy Ark. Even space could be above space. Or even above space could be within space. However you want to look at it. The point is that there is a bridge. Anyway, so we have here three points. We have the first point, which is the Torah, which precedes the world, transcends the world. It's the source of the world. We have at the very end of the spectrum, we have the land of Israel, which is all about the land. It's about earth. It's about the physicality becoming holy. How does the, what's the bridge between Torah and the land of Israel? The Mishkan, which is the tabernacle, which represents the idea of holiness and earthliness coming together. So let's continue the Rebbe's words on page 7. In all these three matters, women had a special merit and unique abilities, and, and they sustained them for the men as well. As we are told regarding the starting point of the giving of the Torah, that starting with the house of Jacob, which represents the women, sustains the sons of Israel as well. Alrighty. So now, let's talk about the idea of the, of, of the women leading the way or being an example of how the Jews ought to view uh, entering and settling in the land of Israel. Page 8. This point is highlighted with entering the land of Israel. Entering Israel would be an inconvenience for the women in particular, a far harder existence than they had in the desert. The vast majority of a woman's household chores weren't necessary in the desert. Preparing food wasn't necessary because manna came from heaven, and Miriam's well provided water. Clothing grew together with the people, and the clouds of glory cleaned them. During the time in the desert, the women didn't need to do these chores at all, and they were able to dedicate all of their time to educating their children. As a result, logically speaking, 
the women should not have wanted to enter Israel. Right? It's, it's much easier to run a house in the desert. Nevertheless, they cherished the land. Unlike the spies who claim that it is a land that consumes its inhabitants, the women accepted all the additional work the land of Israel would, would demand from them with the hope of transforming the land of Canaan to the land of Israel, which is a holy land. This would be a complete transformation from the abominations of the land of Canaan to the greatest possible holiness that can manifest in a physical place, which is the land of Israel. Okay, so what, what's the purpose of, of, of this whole uh, analysis? What are, we, are we, what are we trying to... What's, what's the purpose here? So the story of the daughters of Tzlavchad and the love they showed for the land of Israel is related in the Torah in order to serve as a guide for Jewish women in all subsequent generations. We mentioned earlier that the spiritual concept of the land of Israel is relevant in every time and place. Now this is a very important concept um, to realize. You see, Judaism has such an obsession about the land of Israel. The fact of the matter is that for about, I don't know, 1800 years, most Jews, had, most Jews didn't li- certainly did not live in the land of Israel. And um, probably an equal amount never visited the land of Israel. They didn't even have the opportunity to do so. But Judaism, for 1,800 years, was basically outside of the land of Israel. And yet, for 1,800 years, there was this this focus on Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Now, if if the connection the Jewish people had to the land of Israel for 1,800 years was just a dream, let me tell you something. That, That dream would have been forgotten. A dream, a hope, dies. That's where dreams go. You wake up, the dream is dead. A family can have a dream, one generation, two generations, three generations, and then it dies. Dreams and hopes are exactly that. Dreams and hopes. And the nations of the world looked at the Jewish people like they were totally nuts. You think you're really going back to Israel, you have a much better life here? Even if you don't have a better life, you're never going to get there. And there's nothing there in the land of Israel. You know why the Jews came back to Israel? You know why they even cared about the land of Israel? Not because they prayed about it. And not because they were, you know, they, they couldn't get this dream out of, their, out of their minds. It's because they lived it. They lived the land of Israel. And it's possible to live the land of Israel today. Even if you are not in the land of Israel. There was one, before we continue, it's just a, it's a very illuminating story. There was once a chassid, a student of the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the third Chabad Rebbe. So he lived in Russia. And he, he very much wanted to make Aliyah. He wanted to go to Israel. Already then, there, were, you know, there, there, there was a Hasidic community already in Israel from, from the times of the Alter Rebbe, from the first Chabad Rebbe. The Chabad community supported that community, that Hasidic community that, that was there. And this chassid very much wanted to go to Israel. But uh, he wouldn't make the trip without getting an express permission and a blessing from his Rebbe, from the Tzemach Tzedek. So he asked once, he asked a second time, a third time. He never really got an answer from the Tzemach Tzedek. Finally, he decided that's it. He couldn't take it anymore. He has to move to Israel. So he decided he's not going to ask the Rebbe for permission. He's just going to go and notify the Rebbe that he's leaving. And he, he wants a blessing. He came to the Tzemach Tzedek and like, you know, he, he made his ultimatum, you know, I'm going no matter what. The Tzemach Tzedek told him, Mach do Eretz Yisrael. 
Make Israel here. Make the land of Israel in your shtetl. What was he telling him? So what are you looking for? You're looking for holiness. You're looking for the special, unique quality of the land of Israel. You're right. The physical space, that area, that geographical location called Eretz Yisrael, yes, it, 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 that, that is Eretz Yisrael. That is our land, 100%. And ultimately, the holiness of Eretz Yisrael, which in the times of Mashiach will you know, spread to the entire world, it's all going to originate from there. But right now, we are in Golos. We are in exile. Exile means that physically we're outside of the land of Israel. Or that even if we are in Israel, we could be completely out of touch from the holiness of the land of Israel. It's possible, it's possible for us to live in Israel and to be completely unaware of where we are. And our behavior and life should be totally not in tune with what the holiness of the land of Israel demands. And so what the Tzalak Tzalak was telling him is, you think for 1800 years we've been crying for the land of Israel because we don't have the land? Of course not. The concept, the whole idea of Eretz Yisrael, the exercise of the land of Israel, this exercise of bringing the holiness into the physicality of the world, that's not limited to there. That's what Jews have to do wherever they are. Um... Let's see how the Rebbe explains this. We mentioned earlier that the spiritual concept of the land of Israel is relevant in every time and place. The land of Israel, what's the definition of the land of Israel? The Torah says is the land where God's eyes are constantly upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. What does that, what does that mean? In simple English, imagine wherever you were, you realize that God is watching you. Could you imagine such a thing, such a life? Can you imagine what type of life you would live? Let's see, the Arab kind of like really digs into this. In the spiritual sense, this means conducting ourselves such that our immediate surroundings are constantly enveloped in holiness, just like God's eyes are constantly on His land. This is something we have all been given the ability to achieve. No one can stand in our way in this regard, it depends exclusively on our free choice. Now here, it, it, actually, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. The Alta Rebbe in Tanya, so there's, there's, there's five sections. The fourth section is different letters that the Alta Rebbe wrote to different communities, individuals, etc. Most of them to communities. So chapter 27 is a very powerful letter. Um, and here's just a small excerpt from it. So it says like this, you know, you talk about uh, Gan Eden, heaven, paradise. What's paradise? And what's hell, for that matter? You know what I'm saying? What, you know, we always say that these are the two opposites. So like this, al says, he quotes this from, from Kabbalah, says, the sphere of the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, extends itself around every person. All of a person's positive thoughts and words of Torah and divine service are recorded in this sphere. And likewise, to the contrary, God forbid, negative thoughts and words are recorded in the sphere of Gehenna, which is hell, purgatory, which extends around every person. The point is, wherever you are, you've got purgatory and, and uh, paradise around you. But what does that mean? Everything that we do Everything that we say, everything that we think, 
is being recorded, but not in some, you know, by, with, by some secretaries, you know, many millions of miles away writing it in a computer. It's being recorded in our environment. We define our environment. When we learn Torah, when we pray, when we say positive things, we think positively, the environment around us is an environment of paradise. When we do negative things, we talk negatively and all of that, the environment around us is purgatory. So, now let's say the, the same idea. Everything is interrelated over here. What's the land of Israel? The land of Israel means that God's eyes are upon it. So wherever I am, if I'm creating a holy atmosphere around me, if I'm creating an atmosphere of paradise, if I'm learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, being involved in chesed and kindness and all of these things, being an inspiration to others, so I am creating an environment of the land of Israel. I don't have to be in the land of Israel to do that. I could do that in El Paso. I could do it in Brooklyn. I could do it wherever I am. So now, what's, what's the special connection to the women? As we said, the, the whole idea of the, the story of the daughters of Tzlovkod is to show how the women can be at the forefront of cherishing the land of Israel. What does that mean today? Jewish women and girls have a great responsibilities, which are actually privileges, and they are empowered. Oh, there's a lot of mistakes here. Okay. These responsibilities are not limited to enjoyable matters and educating the children, but extend even to their husband's conduct outside of the home. He knows that when he comes home, his wife will ask him about his day. When she hears that his conduct was in accordance with Torah wisdom, she will be pleased. And if she hears about a failure in a specific area, she will be disappointed. This influences him to maintain the highest level of conduct while he is in his office and occupied with his work affairs. The practical lesson every woman should derive from this for her time, for her time and place is that the conduct of God's eyes are constantly on it, for which women displayed an affinity should be apparent in everything she does. Anyway, the point is that she should make Israel wherever she is. This should be constant, not only in Shabbos and festivals, but even during the weekdays, and even in the mundane matters. God's presence should be felt, like the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, and behold, God stands over him, and he looks at him, searching his reins and heart, to see if he is serving him properly. Let's read that source in Tanya from chapter 41. It's actually a very powerful chapter. The Rebbe suggested that everyone should know this chapter, at least uh, what is spoken about in this chapter, and should think about it, meditate upon it every day, before prayer, other times. One must constantly bear in mind the beginning of the divine service, its core and root, which is contemplating at least mentally on the greatness of the infinite God and on his kingship which extends to all worlds, both the higher and lower realms. Behold, God stands over him, and the whole world is full of his glory. And he looks at him, searching his reins and heart to see if he is serving him properly. Therefore, he must serve in his presence with awe and fear, like a person standing before a king. One must meditate profoundly and at length on this thought, each person according to their mental capacity, according to the time available to him, before he occupies himself with Torah or the observance of the mitzvah, 
such as prior to putting on talis or tefillin. Huh? So that, that's what it means to make Israel around you. Because Israel means it's a place where God's eyes are focused on it all year round. When you live your life and you are constantly aware of the fact that God is watching you, then you are going to create an atmosphere of paradise around you. And that means you're creating an Israel atmosphere around you as well. When a woman shows her affection for, for, for Israel conduct, which is conduct in accordance with God's eyes are constantly on it, in every detail and action, even in the weekdays and with mundane matters, this transforms the entire house, together with the husband, even when he is away from home, and she transforms it into a dwelling place for God. When God is present with us, we have no fear. I don't fear evil because you are with me. Right? That's what the that's what the King David says in chapter twenty-three in, in Psalms. All obstacles disappear. God gives us everything we need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside calm waters. He refreshes my soul. My cup overflows. We receive everything, not just in a basically amenable adder, manner, but with calm and dignity. This is a good and expansive land in divine service, and it leads to goodness and expansiveness in all material matters, children, health, and livelihood, all in abundance. So what's the, what's the takeaway from this whole idea? Now, when we read in this week's parasha, the concept of the Jewish people entering the land of Israel, or inheriting a portion of the land of Israel, or having a connection to the land of Israel, it's not limited to the geographical location. In fact, the message of the land of Israel is something that comes with the Jew no matter where they are. And there's a very specific and unique message for Jewish women that just like in the times of the desert when the Jewish people were entering the land of Israel, they were starting this exercise, this process of transforming a physical space, a physical geographical location on planet Earth to become a holy land. The women were the ones that led the way in expressing their their um, their love and affection for the land so the women should do the same today they are the ones that it's in their hands the women are able to set the tone of the house and make sure that the home is a is a proper jewish home and they're the ones to set the tone that even outside of the home all of the members of the family should know that when they're going to come back to home base mom is going to want to know what happened how was school how was work and want to make sure that it was done in accordance with the ideas and the ideals of the land of Israel, which is that God Almighty is watching everything that we do. Thank you all for joining, and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate-